Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And here we are yet again with another wonderful poem. Um, But before we get into the poem we received a very lovely note from the poet Patrick Cotter that we talked about on our last episode. Yeah, we talked about his poem called Time Traveler, and he was kind enough to write us back a lovely note and to provide a little bit more information and insight into the poem and his creative process. Um, He started off by saying our analysis was 90% right and... The other 10% we couldn't have known without him telling us. So I feel pretty good about that because you never I, know. I'd take that uh, any day of the week for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Notably, one of the other times a poet has contacted us is to let us know we are completely wrong, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was on our episode about Eduardo C. Corral's poem, Sentence, uh, where we said... had... <laughs> he. I mean, we got some stuff right. It wasn't like we were entirely wrong, but one of our big underlying suppositions about the poem was uh incorrect way off base way off. it was he said it in such a nice way that i almost felt like i was right but then when i read what the what he was saying i was like oh oh we were totally wrong yeah and we we went a long way down that wrong road which like <laughs> yeah. again the premise of this podcast is built on a form of literary analysis deeply embedded in and invested in the idea of death of the author and, and all that kind of stuff. So, like, we say wrong and right subjectively. Basically, how well do we uh, sometimes ascribe things to authorial intent that are not there or are there versus, you know, obviously our reading of the poem is valid for us, even if it wasn't the intended message from the poet. Um, but what we have in this email from Patrick Cotter is some really great insights about the poem. So in the in the poem Time Traveler, we talked quite a bit about this door that shows up in it. And and he basically talked, uh, he, he sent us in this email a little bit about how he was inspired to write the poem. Uh, and he said, 
The poem came to me when I shopped in a newly renovated store in Cork. The entrance has an automated door which opens itself. When I approached the exit, I found myself pausing in front of it for about three seconds before I realized it was not an automated door. Uh, it was a conventional door which required pushing. After that, the thought experiment of imagining a visitor from the future, where all doors are automated, was not difficult. It's it's fun to see that poetic moment of inspiration. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and like the poem is so great, and we our conversation obviously got, could get kicked off into so many different directions. And it all started in a moment when someone was at a door. In the poem, there's the phrase wired sesame. And he confirmed for us that the sesame does relate to open sesame, the code word from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Uh, and wired sesame was an elegant way of talking about, you know, an opening, a, a, like automated door. So one of the subjects, we had an ongoing conversation, even after the episode, about the pronunciation of the word Q-U-A-Y. I said quay during the episode, which is an accepted Americanized version of how it's pronounced, but it's like basically wrong. And it should be key, but he provided even more context around that in his email, which is really fascinating and leads into how he talks about a terracotta tense. And he says, so in describing a terracotta tense, which is a phrase that shows up in the poem, I'm imagining the word terracotta having a future usage unknown and incomprehensible to us today, which also just happens to sonically click into the line in the poem rhythmically and alliteratively. So that's all very cool. But in this extra information about the word key, that really gets into this kind of evolving of language, which is super neat. So I'm just going to read that little portion of his message. And he wrote, uh, many streets in Cork incorporate key in their name. All originally would have been river facing, but there are a few which are now situated on waterfronts, which have long been overcovered. Key is nowadays pronounced the same as K-E-Y, but like many words that now sound that way, it was pronounced differently in the 18th century. Back then in standard English, Q-U-A-Y was pronounced as K in the same way that T-E-A-T was pronounced as Tay and Lee, L-E-E, -E, as Lay. And then he gives an example from the, the Pope poem, uh, The Rape of the Lock, which has a full rhyme in it, soft yielding minds to water glide away and sip with nymphs their elemental T-E-A-Tay. Um, so that was a really neat insight into a little bit of history of the city of Cork, additional kind of time travel thoughts, and yet another lesson for me about how wrong you can get <laughs> when saying words, because not only did I say it wrong, there's two other ways of saying it that would have been more correct. <laughs> could have been 18th century correct, could have been actually correct. Um, but yeah, just a really lovely note. And it's as we say in every episode, we love to hear from listeners. And sometimes that includes the poets themselves. And that's always a, a real treat for us. Yeah, it was um, such a such a gift uh, to receive the the note and all the thoughts. And I will definitely be minding my keys and K's and quays going forward, certainly lest I step into another century or one that doesn't exist. Hey, maybe we're <laughs> the evolution. Maybe we're the change into the yeah. 23rd century pronunciation of these words. We must build the terracotta tents we want to see in the world. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, Patrick Otter, and my apologies on behalf of 
of both of us for uh, for that little shindig that I had no part of. Well, we are going into another place in time um, with this next poem. It's a really wonderful poem by a very wonderful poet that I have only recently just encountered. Um, the poem is called Why I Am Silent About the Lament, and it's by the poet Abdullah Al-Baraduni, who was a Yemeni poet, and the poem is translated from Arabic into English by um, the poet Threya Almontasser, um, who herself uh, is a poet and just won the um, the 2020, I think, Walt Whitman Award. Um, and she is Yemeni American. Um, her book just came out this year, The Wild Fox of Yemen with Grey Wolf. Um, and in it is is its original poems in English. And then also she's been translating um, Al-Baraduni. And um, yeah, I just, I'm really, I just kind of encountered her and then I encountered her translations and yeah, I just got very excited. Um, very brief and then we can sort of talk about it a little more, but since it's, you know, a translated poem, some context is a, is a little helpful beforehand, potentially. Abdullah uh, Al-Baraduni was born in 1929 um, and he died in 1999. Um, he lost his sight because of smallpox um, when he was, a, uh, I think, like six years old. Um, and he lived through very tumultuous political events. Um, yeah, he was born only like 11 years after the Ottoman Empire dissolved and like the, the beginnings of the contemporary yeah. state of Yemen. Yeah, and um, the British had um, colonized it, and then the in '67, I believe, um, Yemen achieved independence. Um, but it was split in north into North Yemen and South Yemen. Um, and they eventually reunited in 1990. Um, but, you know, through those decades, um, Baraduni was a very uh, outspoken political uh, critic um, and often used his poetry um, to speak out against um, the tyrannical rulers um, and was imprisoned many times for his writing and for his poetry. And by the end of his life, he was well read across the Middle East and the Arabic world um, and was, you know, kind of considered, I guess, Yemen's national poet. Yeah. And so this is why I am silent about the lament by Abdullah al-Baraduni. They tell me my silence is about lamentation. I tell them the howling is ugly. 
poetry is only for life. And I felt like singing, not howling. How do I call the dead now that between us are hushed dirt and grave? I am surrounded by mute soil and a mausoleum. Howling is only for widows and I am not like a widow who wails on the silent casket. And that's a poem. Wow. It's pretty intense. It's very intense. Um, but it strikes me it's also committed to, I mean, sort of the one of the central lines is poetry is only for life and I felt like singing, not howling. I feel like that is a really important injection into a lot of the kind of intense, more, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, death-centered imagery and like death and loss and grief. I feel like that second couplet really stands out. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit more. Let's do the quick narrative rundown of the poem. Oh yeah, no, that's great. I mean, it's it's a you know it's a very short poem. It's it's eight lines, um, and it's four stanzas basically of of couplets. Um, and in the in the it was also published in the Offing Mag, um, and the Arabic was side by side. And um, that's also the case in the original Arabic, where it's it's eight lines and and four, four stanzas of two lines. Um, and yeah, basically, I mean, we have this, I think the kind of the sense of the very literal what is happening emerges a little bit in the third stanza. How do I call the dead now that between us are hushed dirt and grave, I am surrounded by mute soil and a mausoleum. I mean, we, you know, the speaker, um, we don't know quite all the details, but there's been a loss. It could have been one person who's died. It could be, could even be more figurative of, I don't know, a nation or a people or something like that. But someone has died. It, it feels died. like more, doesn't it? It does. It does. Like there, there's a lot of plurals, I feel like. Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what's interesting is there's, there's, um, I mean, in a way, that's the only thing that's, that's hap that happens in the poem is there's been a loss of some kind. And then the speaker is thinking about it and talking about it and singing about it in a way. Um, but you're right that there's like in the first stanza, there's a they telling me. And then the speaker is telling them. Um, and then in the third stanza, there's an us. Um, how do I call the dead now that between us are hushed dirt and grave? And the dead are, is, is all, as you were saying, like the dead it, is, feels large. I, it could be one, but it just, it feels like more than one, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, particularly the next line, howling is only for widows, widows, plural. Yeah. And I, I, um, I actually, I found a review of Almontasser's 
book uh, in Plowshares where the reviewer talks about this poem and I found what how they wrote about it interesting and I think gets to kind of this collective people versus personal thing. Um, Almontasser's inclusion of Al-Baraduni's work points to the constant presence of Yemen and the Yemeni people throughout the collection as a whole. Why I am silent about the lament, the second of her translations, is particularly evocative of her own negotiations between the visible suffering of contemporary Yemen and, quote, what your TV doesn't tell you. Um, quote, poetry is only for life. She translates from Al-Baraduni's uh, Arabic, and I felt like singing, not howling. Um, drawing the distinction between singing and howling. Al-Baraduni's lines not only call attention to their own harmonies, but also refuse an elegiac impulse. So likewise in her singing, Almantasser avoids the image of the mourning widow in order to figure Yemen, despite its immense and ongoing struggles as anything but a quote, silent casket. And that last bit kind of is, is going beyond the reach of this poem and more toward um, Almantasser's work. I'm like, wanna be somewhat careful about the timing of everything, but um, you know, like, Right now, you know, Yemen is in the midst of, of what everyone has declared to be one of the, the worst humanitarian crises um, on the planet. The brief overview of that is, you know, following the Arab Spring uh, revolutions that started in Tunisia, um, people rose up in Yemen as well. And then um, it's often referred to as a civil war that emerged um, was and is heavily backed by Saudi Arabia, um, which then the US has also played a major role in um, supporting that side. And so um, the war that has continued to the present has just been absolutely devastating for the people of Yemen. That was all happening in the 2010s um, and you know, Barduni, I'm not sure exactly when he wrote this poem, um, but he passed away in 99. Um, but certainly given the the long stretch of, you know, there, there were, I think, pretty brutal, um, perhaps civil wars uh, during his lifetime in Yemen. No, there were ongoing... Com there was ongoing conflict between the North and the South and then other sub-conflicts, I think more so in the South than the North, but on both in within both of those, uh, you know, what were South Yemen and North Yemen, there was just ongoing violence and conflict. But you're so right. I mean, the contemporary situation in Yemen is, you know, most human rights observers and and international humanitarian organizations have named it like the greatest humanitarian crisis currently happening in the world. And it has been for the last several years. It has become, as you pointed out, this kind of proxy war for Saudi Arabia and Iran. And of course, the United States sells hundreds of billions of dollars of weaponry to Saudi Arabia. So when Saudi Arabia bombs 
children in Yemen, they're often doing it with, if not directly bombs sold to them by the United States, though that's often the case, at least they're dropping them from planes the U.S. sold them. And so like the immediate complicity of the United States in the ongoing atrocities there is really notable. Um, Particularly, I think something that stands out to me about that is uh, during the Trump administration, there was an actual bipartisan vote to end U.S. involvement. And then President Trump vetoed it. And it didn't have a veto override number of votes, but I think it was like 57-43. And so everybody who's like, oh, bipartisanship, everybody should work together. Why is it? Why why can't people get together? They fucking did. (laughs) They did. And then an asshole was like, oh, no. Bad. It was bad. They got together. They voted on it. (laughs) In a great moment of bipartisan continuity, the Biden administration takes office, releases the report of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist, who basically they confirmed that Mohammed bin Salman, who's the, the effective leader of Saudi Arabia, had personally ordered his killing, brutal killing. Um, and uh, on the same day, the U.S. announces that they will be, quote, recalibrating their relationship with Saudi Arabia, which now seems to be recalibrating to the same calibration um, as, you know, there were other news reports that um, they've been meeting sort of like on the DL for a while. then they just had a straight up meeting in early July. So like, (laughs) I mean, at least it's not hundreds of billions of dollars of military equipment, but it's not great. Um, And of course you can look through most recent U S administrations and see a strong commitment to at the very least selling a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. But one of the tensions in with Yemen is that it is, it directly borders Saudi Arabia. Yemen is situated next to these hyper wealthy Gulf states. It's about the same distance from Sana'a in Yemen to Dubai as it is from where I am in Bennington to where you are in Minneapolis. Like, it's not that far. It's about 1,200, 1,300 miles. And the disparity there is incredible. I mean, Dubai is this, like, weird, it's becoming an influencer paradise where all these YouTubers are moving there. And it has all these, I mean, it also has attendant slums and everything, but it's just, it's the the juxtaposition is is really stark. And, I, and we don't need to obviously spend all of our time on the contemporary conflict in Yemen, but I do think it overhangs the poem in a way because, as you were saying, there is this connection between the conflicts that Al-Baraduni was writing about and the present moment. There's a reason that these poems are included in this more contemporary collection, Um There is a report released in 2019. So early on in the report, it's on page seven. We'll link it and everything. Um, They have numbers and the heading says, if the conflict were to end in 2019, it would account for, and then it has all these numbers. So this is now about two years ago. If it ended in 2019, it would account for 233,000 deaths, which would be 
102,000 combat deaths and 131,000 indirect deaths due to lack of food, healthcare services, and infrastructure. So more than half of the deaths are people not involved in the conflict, but who are being harmed by the, in, the, the destruction and the instability that the conflict causes, which is part of why the framing of this report is about the impact of the war on development in Yemen. 140,000 deaths of children under the age of five. 40% of people living in extreme poverty. 14% of children, which is about 1.6 million children, living with malnutrition. And a loss in economic output of about $89 billion. It's staggering. All of these numbers which are about if the conflict had ended two years ago, which it hasn't, are an indication of just how much on every level is being lost because of this. And I think you see in that a little bit of where that second stanza in this poem comes in, which is poetry is only for life. And I felt like singing, not howling, which is the vast potential of the country of Yemen that becomes completely obscured when the only thing in the headlines is the fact that there is this like mass death, which of course is hugely important and the fact that it isn't getting paid attention to enough is an indication that there need to be many more headlines and in fact if it made the headlines on page one it might be even more valuable but it's not for i think it's so important that it's not just about the conflict it's about what the conflict erases and yemen has been a trading hub it's on the gulf of aden it also borders the red sea it has a huge you know, many port cities, vast amounts of culture from the age of the uh, Islamic empires passed through Yemen. One of the oldest mosques in the world, the Great Mosque of Sana'a, I think it might have been the first one built outside Mecca, maybe, or something. Um, I mean, that but, would make sense. I, yeah. yeah, and it's like, it, and all of these sites and all of this history is under threat because of the present conflict but it also speaks to again like that is a great aspect of of yemen and what yemen is about that should be celebrated and broadcast to the world and i think that vein runs so strongly through this poem of you know i i don't just want to be about grief i don't just want to be next to like i i do a little bit read this poem as you know kind of bringing the 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 country into it when you say howling is only for widows and i am not like a widow who wails on the silent casket you know i i kind of see like i don't want yemen in a casket i am not like the grieving widow of a dead country my country is alive there are people in it and we are more than this grief and conflict and violence that's happening there's also these thousands of years of culture and history and music yemeni folk music is incredible yeah no i i completely agree and it's it's um i've been kind of thinking about it a little bit since we did the episode on palestinian poetry and there was actually a recent chris hayes episode uh why is why is this happening where he interviews um Palestinian-American scholar Rashid Khalidi. And something that he said was, people only notice when the rockets fly uh, or something like that. It's, he was like, you know, we can be 
tortured, we can be beaten, we can be da-da-da, no one blinks an eye. And I think all of these sort of issues are um, sort of related but different. And so I don't want to say that they're all the same, but I feel like there are some parallels as well with, you know, the the spectacle of of black suffering in the United States and, you know, the sharing of police killings of, of black people. And actually my um, partner, uh, Sarita pointed this out um, that when um, COVID was getting really bad for the first time this winter and spring in India, the spectacle of the cremations and the fires like was really the thing that like sort of brought it to international attention. Um, and I think there's, there's all these different ways in which, um, you know, the, the West or the U S or the, I don't know, um, can only see or only shows, you know, um, it's like, <laughs> you're either invisible and then your only visibility is when things are like so horrific. Um, and also to, a, to an often to an extent that, that, that figures um, those people and groups and communities and countries as basically like without agency or not really people. It's just like a pathetic kind of victim that evokes pity. Um, like that's the kind of emotional, um, uh, like sort of response that the, those sorts of news stories are kind of trying to provoke. And, you know, it's, it's obviously complex because of course, especially when there's no other attention, it's like, it might feel weird to critique the, the uh, form of attention that it's getting. Anyway, I, I was really drawn to this poem because on the one hand, it is speaking to that like very bleak um, reality of, of suffering and loss and death. You know, I get the sense in that third stanza that, you know, there's, you know, whether it's one person or many or figurative, there's been a kind of burial. And then it's like, how do I call the dead now? that between us are hushed dirt and grave. I am surrounded by mute soil and in a mausoleum that there's a sense that before this kind of burial, there was this communication of some kind of between the speaker and the dead. And so there's that acknowledgement, but then at the same time, it's not this howling or this, you know, wail wailing that the speaker sort of says is ugly. And, and this poem is for life and, and in a way, it's interesting because it's about <laughs> like the title of the poem is why I am silent about the lament. Um, and they tell me my silence is about lamentation is the first line. Like in some ways, it's like he has the speaker or Baraduni himself has not been uh, talking about, you know, or lamenting publicly or vocally about um, these losses or this suffering or, you know, whatever is kind of being referred to. 
like and is silent about it. And then the the poem is like explaining, you know, this is why I'm silent because poetry is for life. Um, and I'm not going to write you an elegy, basically. Um, and and you know, but then at the same time, it's filled with that kind of um, loss as well. Um, and, you know, the dirt and the soil are silent too, you know, the mute soil and the hushed dirt and grave. Um, so it's not, I don't know, it's just very powerful to me in that way and very kind of complicated. And there's this very interesting sense of audience, you know, like who's the they, you know, and yet there's this also this desire in that third stanza to like address that the audience is the dead or hope aspiring to be the dead, um, even though it cannot be. Especially, you know, when it's like, you know, we're in the United States, you know, I don't know anyone personally who's in Yemen. And like, it's what makes, I feel like us talk about the the news attention so much because it's like, that's actually our a main point of contact that we have with, you know, just like anywhere that you're not and that you don't have, you know, like personal connections to. It's hard to even know what slants the news reports have on these things because they can be so warped beyond like being conscious of them of of how these issues are being framed and they're so there's all they're always so complex i mean i've felt that with like <laughs> i'll read a new york times article about like policing in minneapolis and i'm like what that's not how it's happening like <laughs> that's not how it's going on in the city and I don't know everything about how it's going on in this city, but I have some some sense. Um, and it's just exponentially more removed in this case. So I felt really, you know, and actually um, Threya Almantasser said she learned that there was only one translated poem of Abdullah uh, Al-Baradini's poems from Arabic into English. Um, despite him being, you know, when he, when he passed away, he had an obituary in the guardian, um, the associated press had an obituary that was like Yemen's most famous poet, um, dies. Um, and it's clear that he was such a figure, um, you know, and, and yet, you know, there's only one, there was only one poem um, that anyone in the English speaking world could read. And so that is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is just inexcusable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're, you're so right. And I think that that is such an important frame particularly on the news reporting side, where like whenever you read a news report about like an event that you were actually at or any subject that you yourself are very familiar with, you immediately see all of the ways in which, even if it's not wrong, you at least can tell it's incomplete. 
you know, and just having that understanding, particularly on reporting from, you know, around the world for an American audience, um, I think especially an American audience, but even just a Western audience in general, I think that's so important to have in mind. Um, I'm also really glad that you brought up that third stanza because in talking about this, it occurs to me that that feels like it's reaching for two different things. And again, that's partially those lines being brought into conversation with the present, but even within, you know, Albaraduni's life, there was a lot of violence and, and turmoil in Yemen. So how do I call the dead now that between us are hushed dirt and grave? I'm surrounded by mute soil and a mausoleum. That could be the immediate dead from present violence. But that also feels to me like the dead that the speaker wants to call are the long dead who can talk about a different vision of the country. It feels like it's deeply embedded in that previous line. Poetry is only for life. And I felt like singing, not howling. He wants like a choir to sing with him and they're dead. And how can you reach those voices and bring them into the present and have them, you know, sing a different story about what Yemen could be and to really show that kind of history and vibrancy and life that is another narrative about that place it doesn't just have to be about violence and conflict and human rights abuses and and all this kind of stuff it can also be an ancient place that has had civilization and cultural wonders for thousands and thousands of years and continues to have a vibrant musical tradition and incredible art and all this other stuff that's still happening one of the stories that is kind of an eternally recurring one again in the u.s press um but i i always am sort of struck by it is that uh, yemen is famous for having some of the best honey in the world and mm. beekeepers in yemen have to move their bees around to be near flowers and stuff and so the honey business in Yemen, more and more people are becoming beekeepers and producing this incredibly high quality honey that sells for a, a very high price point to the wealthy nations that are nearby. Not only do they have to move their bees around under threat of like all these airstrikes and everything. To me, that's just like astonishing to think about that there are people in the middle of the night moving their beehives around knowing yeah. that it's like really dangerous wow um, i remember the first time i read a news story about that a couple years ago i was just like floored because it's one of those things where you think about like what you're doing at three in the afternoon and then you think about the time difference and you think about the fact that there's someone in yemen moving a beehive <laughs> at night Jeez. in danger but there was just an article again a couple of days ago i think in the guardian we'll link it and it was talking about the fact that no matter who is at different checkpoints, if they see beekeepers and people who have like beehives in the back of their trucks, they always just get waved through because they know that they're going to go find new flowers for their bees. <laughs> so there's this like freedom of movement to the beekeepers. But, but, uh, and like wow. right now, at this moment, some of the best honey in the world is being produced in Yemen. You can probably find it on the internet. I don't know if any of it makes its way to the United States, but certainly in the area, this specific kind of honey, which apparently has a slightly bitter aftertaste and just a rich bouquet of flavors, and it's like really special, is being produced in Yemen. Wow. I, I like that third stanza because it feels like both of it's there. It is calling for, you know, more attention to the present and more attention to the past. 
there's not enough of either of those things when it comes to the the understanding of Yemen in the West. I mean, I'm sure it's one of those things where some infinitesimal percent of people can find Yemen on a map. Oh, for sure. Or think that it's entirely desert and it's like, Oh my God. Quite lush. Yeah. Um, Just the last thing on this kind of media stuff, at least my last thought on it is that the, like the howling and uh, the mention of widows. I distinctly remember in the late nineties and early two thousands when there was a whole string of like a ramp up in suicide bombings in 2001 and 2002, there was just like a lot of suicide bombings. There was a lot of coverage of them. And invariably after almost every single one, there would be women just yelling and screaming and crying and beating their faces over and over and over again. I remember those images over and over and over again and thinking like i don't see anyone do that here there are so many people who form a particular kind of opinion about what that must mean of like this is a place that is just rubble and dust and grief how does anything grow there how does anyone live there i've heard people ask that question based on like the way that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were covered because all you saw were deserts or, you know, mountains where it looked like no one could live and everyone seemed like they were poor. And these are places where literally they're so fertile. They're the first places people (laughs) built cities. Like, of course, fertile Crescent. it's the fertile Crescent. Of course, people live there. It's like maybe one of the best places on earth for humans to live. It's not just deserts. Like, yeah. I ju- the the repetition of certain images clearly has an effect because I just I so clearly remember those images of grief and they're not the kinds of things that a lot of people would talk about, but they would bring it up in a sidelong way where there would be these really, you know, ill-informed white teen in the midwest conversations about like (laughs) seeing that over and over and over again and and this poem does feel like such a powerful injection in an important way and just like asking for a slightly different focus yeah well yeah i mean there's definitely like a a kind of i mean there's obviously like a, a sort of gendered aspect to that sort of like public grieving um that i guess i would say i'm not sure how this poem in particular is navigating that i mean certainly the speaker is distancing himself from you know i am not one of those widows um at the same time and yeah and so it's 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 complicated (laughs) yeah well and even then like Um, the way the word widow is being used is almost to create a sense of intimacy between the speaker and the dead singular or plural yeah you know i'm not one of those widows but by saying that you kind of make yourself on an equal footing with them in terms of the kind of loss that you're feeling yeah you know like i'm i'm not doing it that way but I feel that strongly. No, I think that's really right. What you had said about the third stanza 
and the the past and the present reminds me a bit of the, about the the guardian's obituary um which was you know it's like one of those it's not it's like a like a literary obituary so it's more of a um i don't know it's it's interesting i don't know how accurate it is but you know it came out in 99 baraduni's verse resounds with anger at leaders who promised much yet delivered little his arresting imagery like sweet bitterness or will weave from my blood her glowing eyes and lips harked back to the golden age of yemeni poetry yet his subject matter was contemporary and revolutionary um apart from 12 volumes of poetry he wrote uh he also wrote six books on politics literature folklore and costume uh he reveled in yemen's distinctive customs many of which predate the 7th century onset of islam he described how yemenis would read coffee dregs consult the shrines of holy men apply tar to their foreheads or use palmistry and playing cards to ward off a neighbor's curse. And it sort of concludes though, um, Baraduni was a contradictory figure, a political radical who cherished ancient traditions, a universalist who adored his native land, a popular hero of the written word in a country where half remain illiterate, a blind man who saw the truth and was never afraid to express his opinions. And, and apparently he was a, he was also championed like both kind of much older, you know, long dead um, poets and also contemporary um, ones too. And yeah, so I, I just, there's a, that sense of the past and the present and the kind of the distinctiveness of himself and where he was from piggybacking on that I discovered and this is like another direction so I'll just mention it briefly um, but there was another article that was talking about contemporary uh, Yemeni poetry um, particularly by young people there was this recent project called in the land of shattered windows um, which had sort of nine young poets from different parts of Yemen. Um, and it was a tradition called Bala, um, which were long poems that are composed and performed competitively um, or as part of a dialogue. And they, they exchanged audio recordings over WhatsApp. And then it's been, you can um, listen to the Arabic uh, original poems online. And then they've also translated them into English and I think they're, I don't know, they're just really amazing. Um, and yeah, and just like a really like another interesting encounter with people writing right now. That's really cool. Yeah, but hopefully more, more to come. Should we uh, read it again? Let's hear it again. All right. This is Why I Am Silent About the Lament by Abdullah al-Baraduni, uh, translated from the Arabic by Freya Almantasser. And here it is, Why I Am Silent About the Lament. 
They tell me my silence is about lamentation. I tell them the howling is ugly. Poetry is only for life and I felt like singing, not howling. How do I call the dead now that between us are hushed dirt and grave? I am surrounded by mute soil and a mausoleum. Howling is only for widows, and I am not like a widow who wails on the silent casket. So, Connor. So, Jack. What uh, what have you been reading? What have you been watching? <laughs> what have you been thinking about? What's what cultural uh, stuff is is uh, in your world these days? <laughs> oh man, Jack! No, a very exciting thing took place on Netflix recently, which was Gunpowder Milkshake. Oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay, not that thing. <laughs> Season two of I Think You Should Leave. No. Oh, my God. Uh, Season two of. Mm? Never have I ever. What, oh, what my. <laughs> what, what do you know? What is this? What is this no, sorcery? No, no. Yeah. You didn't even tell me about season one. I didn't How tell you about season fault? one. You didn't, I, well, no one told me about season. Okay. What is this? What is, what is happening? What is happening right now? Never have I ever. It's the best ever. Okay. Okay. Never have I ever seen. Never have I ever. Ah! Here's the log <laughs> line from IMDb. Okay. Oh, I love IMDb. The complicated life of a modern day, first generation Indian American teenage girl inspired by Mindy Kaling's own childhood. Basically, it's a classic high school uh nerd romance love triangle type thing story comedy but it's so good and and this is why i'm bringing it up to you jack yes because yes okay well here's the 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 darker part of the premise is Uh-oh. and you learn this in the first episode of the first season, which you sh- okay. should have already seen, and I don't know how you haven't. I'll I'll get there. I'll catch up. Um. Wow. So her uh dad died unexpectedly, and then oh, no. after that, she became kind of like as a trauma response paralyzed for months, and then oh, wow. the show kind of is like picking up like in the sort of just after that, but like living in the kind of the long traumatic moment of that basically. But then everything like plot wise is high school nerd love and friend troubles. Um, And it's really good. The reason why I brought it up to you is because her dad was a huge tennis fan and the nice story is uh narrated by none other than Johnny, Johnny Mac. Mac. Johnny Mac. 
Oh my god, I did know. I actually okay, so I didn't know about this series by name, <laughs> but I did know that Mindy Kaling had a series, and that for no reason I could discern, John McEnroe was the narrator. Yep. Okay, that's this I'm, one. That I can't wait to watch it now. I it's mean, so good. It sounded great even before that part. Yeah, I'm so invested now. Yes, it's it's gonna it's, happen. It's really great. It's like so good. You can. It's one of those shows you can watch the whole season in one sitting, and. Is it like six or eight 30 minute episodes or something? Yeah, I think 10, 10, 20 to 30 minute, I think. Okay, it's a long evening. All right. It's a late afternoon. You know what I'm saying? I watched Big Little Lies in one sitting. I can. Yeah, okay. You could dig it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. It's like, it's a perfect, it's one of it there's it's a perfect blend of the comedy and the the heartfelt issues and the characters are all just great and so it's you just want to watch them hang out yeah so season one came out you know eons ago in netflix time but season two just dropped this week i'm on it i can't wait to get caught up this sounds so good (laughs) it's amazing Highly recommended. Now that I've uh, burst your bubble, what have you been watching, listening to, reading, investigating, absorbing? Oh, boy. Well, that's a long list. You know there's always something going on. Um, (laughs) I've been immersing myself a bit in Australian culture. As I mentioned previously on this, I've been listening to the Weekly Planet podcast and watching the YouTube channel, Mr. Sunday Movies. And I also got, you know, sucked into the back catalog of Auntie Donna, which is an Australian sketch comedy group that Connor has had to deal with some clips from that I have sent him, potentially at odd hours of the day and night. And Very so, odd hours. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Look, when the spirit moves you. I get it. The spirit moves you. Um, I get it. Uh, so yeah, I've been been doing a lot of Aussie stuff. That's that's not my, my recommendation. My recommendation is actually a uh, an online music compendium called Habibi Funk, which is sort of spinning off of some of the themes of this poem. It is, uh, I'll just read a little bit of the description that they have for themselves. Habibi Funk is dedicated to re-releasing a style of music that historically never existed as a musical genre. We use the term to describe a certain sound that we like from the countries of the Arab world. The songs we choose... Uh, are created in places quite far from one another and under very different circumstances. Some are written and recorded during war times, others in exile. Despite the differences, we think there is a musical connection between them. Essentially, we are interested in musical endeavors in which artists from the Arab world mixed local and regional influences with the musical interests that came from outside of the region. And so it's all of these awesome songs from like this, mostly it seems like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that are like these super groovy, funky disco tunes from the Arab world. And they're so good. There's like albums that you can get. And there are a lot of playlists. There's also some YouTube like DJ sets of various Habibi funk tracks. And it's just a bunch of great music that is like, yeah, it'll lift you up, make you feel good. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's great it's just amazing great. that sounds like, um i love and, that and i i particularly like it as sort of a a balance to some of the music that has become a little bit more popular in recent years particularly like north african guitar music has had a little bit of a moment in the last 
five, seven years, um, artists who I really love, um, like Tanaru Wen, Bambino, Mdu Maktar, uh, who are doing this now, kind of like the, the, the artists who inspired them to play the electric guitar are folks like Jimi Hendrix, but it's kind of filtered through their lens of the musical traditions they grew up with. Um, so you get these really fascinating guitar based groups out of the Sahara desert, um, cool. which are, they're awesome. But this is like, uh, um, that's sort of like the rock side and the contemporary side. And this is more like a disco funk, <laughs> like pop side from, you know, cool. 30 to 50 years ago. And it's, ah, uh, it's amazing. I love that. If, if I had to pick one track, I would say check out the track Sidibu, which is the name of a of a city, um, Sidibu Said in Tunisia. Um, but it is just like the most groovinest track that you can imagine. And it'll stick with you in a good way for a long time. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. Je t'ai croisé par hasard dans la grande rue de Sidibourg. 